0: Listening to Achtung Mill, broadcasting from the beautiful South Bermondsey. Except no substitute.
2: Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to show number seven, final show in this first series of Achtung Mill history. I'm here speaking with rugby paper Daily Express and Mill historian Neil Fisler. Welcome to the show, Neil. Hello, Nick. Superb to be with you again. And again. And we are covering the final two personalities in this first series. Um, one, one name, Neil sprung with this, and I hadn't heard of him. So I have to take my, my hat off to Neil because I hadn't heard of the first name that we're going to cover shortly, which is Charles Che Burgess. New name on me. I, I hadn't heard of him. So this is an education. I did a little bit of research on, on him prior to the show. That's a new one for me. So there's always, always room to learn in this life. And then after we've, we've done Che Burgess, um, a massive name, a massive personality, a huge man in all senses of the word. Charles Hewitt's major name in history. Street. Um, I think possibly even to this day, a man who divides opinion um, They compared with Marmite. I think maybe Charlie Hewitt was a Marmite character. But we're going to begin, if we may. You know, with the uh the interesting story of Che Burgess, eighteen seventy-three to nineteen sixty. We played for the Lions as a left back in eighteen ninety-eight to nineteen hundred, sixty-two games and one goal. Yeah, we
3: took on in one of our other episodes. He was a Bob Hunter special.
2: Bob Hunter uh, Bob
3: yeah. went home to Montrose. Yeah. Uh in the summer of eighteen ninety eight and returned with Che Burgess brought him to the East Ferry Road, where he played for two
2: seasons before moving on to Newcastle in he May 1900. Played 62 games, scored one goal. Um, an interesting character. I mean, this, all of these um, names we've covered in this series of, of, are fascinating. I think there's, there is actually a book on Charles Burgess, Che Burgess. I hadn't heard of him, so I did a, a modicum of... Research on the on on the net. There's not a huge amount of them, but there is a book about Charles Burgess called Golf Links: The Bringing of Golf to America. Um, And I've picked out um, his. uh, He left Millwall in 1901, and he's he's described his most unforgettable game for his new club Portsmouth, which would be the very first game he played, which happened to be at the home of um, his previous club Millwall Athletic. So I'll read this little section if I may, Neil, because I think it's quite illustrative of the, the themes now are the same as the themes in this club at 1901, or the same as you had in 2020. So, he's, so basically, Che Burgess is, was, was lauded as a hero uh, at Millwall, um, but he left for another club, and that was considered a form of heresy by the fans. Um, <laughs> even though he had spent the previous season with Newcastle, he had not had the occasion to return to play his former London club, and now he did with, with Portsmouth. Um, And the first match of the season between them took on the the complexion of a crusade for the riled up London fans in an incident that recalls the unruly behaviour that unfortunately still sometimes occurs today. The newspaper of Portsmouth um, reported the passion of the occasion marred the game. Former Millwall idol Burgess made his debut for Portsmouth but was booed every time he touched the ball uh, with (laughs) supporters regarding the signing for the South Coast Club as a gross act of desertion, tempers continued to rise in the crowd of 6,000. And when Portsmouth Smith placed the ball for a corner kick close by the main stand, he was felled by a stone thrown at him by a spectator. The missile caused the dreadful gash on his forehead, rendering virtually useless for the match. After the final whistle, Portsmouth players were forced to run the gauntlet through incensed spectators. Um, they did win the game 4-2. And there was the standard FA inquiry into the behaviour of the fans. That's in the golf book, Bring <laughs> Golf to America by Charles Burgess. Yeah, if anybody ever complains about things that that <laughs> may or
3: may not occur now, point out that it's been going on since 1902, at least
1: for keeping <laughs> up.
2: Oh dear, there's a, there's, a, there's a very deadpan report. I mean, that's a far more glossy report there, but this is the Athletic News and just describing the same game. I just love the deadpan style. Um, uh, Portsmouth player W. Smith was standing at the corner flag, waiting to take the corner kick when somebody was alleged to have thrown a stone at him. It then moves on to describe the rest of the game. Like that's the most natural thing in the world. (laughs) Someone loves a stone at you and spits your head open. Uh, You know, man's game. Um, Great team photo, which I will will stick on on online of the Lions in uh, 1898, playing in all white um, with, with Che in the team. But why is he in a golf book, Neil? Why is Shea Burgess writing a book, well, Charles Burgess must be his son, I think, writing a book called Golf Links, bringing golf to America?
3: Because he he was he was actually a golf professional in Massachusetts. After he went to America, he taught Bing Crosby wow. to play golf. <laughs> baseball legend Babe Ruth. Yeah, wow. So, so what a so, life? And he was actually Harvard University's first professional football coach, or soccer, as they Sucker. call it. Wonderful story about the Ryder Cup as well. He's also credited as the man who saved the Ryder Cup from extinction, because uh, after the first competition, the USA couldn't uh, couldn't afford to send a team to the UK so they basically they said right then no more Ryder Cup. Uh, so Che Burgess raised the ten thousand dollars that was wow. necessary because the P because the US PGA couldn't afford it. You can't yeah you, know, you
2: can't imagine now no, no. Very different sports era isn't it? I mean the Ryder Cup. Still hate him <laughs> at Millwall <my> though. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh saving saving the golf's all very well, but you you get him well he's not can't come back down there now, but he left us for going to go to Portsmouth. No wonder they did their nuts at him.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we'll never be forgiven for Never
2: forgiven. Charles Charles Miller Burgess, Che Burgess as he's known, um, golfer, millwall player, footballer, um despised to this day on the Isle of Dogs. <laughs> Golf coach to the golf ah. coach. Uh, yeah, with Babe Ruth and, and and Bing Crosby, two huge, huge names and two star names. there. wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, so, eighteen ninety eight to nineteen hundred sixty two games. Um, Charles Burgess passed away in Newtonville, which I think would be in in, in the US. Uh, yeah, definitely. May nineteen sixty. Um, Charles Miller Burgess. You're listening
3: to Achtung Millwall.
2: I don't think any man in Mill history divides opinion like Charles Hewitt. He's, he's, he's got a huge reputation, doesn't he? Good and bad.
3: Yeah, he's either loved or hated. You, I've spoken to players that played under him and they absolutely despised him. It's, it's quite safe to say that he was very well liked by some of the Some of the players absolutely couldn't stand him. No, no, but, I mean... Absolutely loved him. He just unbelievable, but he, but his actual contribution to Millwall, I think, has largely been forgotten. Like a lot of people that we've mentioned in this series.
2: Well, I think he was he was so controversial um, that the contribution side of it is is easy to get lost in the in what you might call the colour of the of the man. You know, I mean, it, it's it, you're you're right because the he was Mill manager in two spells, listeners. So he managed the Lions in nineteen thirty six to nineteen forty. And then again, post war, in much more difficult times, 1948 to 56. But that 1936 to 40 period was um, a, a period of achievement. We, I believe we were promoted as champions from the third division. Was it 1937 that we, we, we won the third division? Uh, I believe.
3: 1938, yeah. It was actually a golden period, I think it's quite safe to say, in Millwall history. He took us to a FA Cup semi-final in 1937. Yep. yep. Then the following season, we'd actually started to build a team that was going to go, it was going places.
2: I think the club was planning on, on promotion. I mean, obviously this is 1939 but- to 40. They were, they were thinking we had a real chance of first division football. Um, and but for Mr Hitler and his you know invasion of the uh the, the, <laughs> Poland, then we may have achieved it, but some sometimes that kind of got in the way,
3: yeah, I think everything was geared up for it well we had the manager we had the club actually showing ambition, and know we complain, don't we? I know we love to moan about of course yeah. You know, Club having no ambition.
2: I think Charlie Hewitt was a, was was was. I mean, I've seen him described in the James Murray book um, as part politician, part football manager, part showman. Um, it was a very interesting character. I would love to have met him. I probably would have hated him, but I think I would have been fascinated by him because he. I've seen the you know the pre-war, pre Second World War photos of the team. He, he changed the colours. He brought in the bright, the bright red lion. He was involved with every aspect of Millwall Football Club from the the publicity, he the program. fact he, he actually did everything in the terms of administration for the club, didn't he? As well as managing the team.
3: Yeah, Richard Lindsay's book describes him as Mister Millwall, Mr. which Mr. I think is probably quite a quite a fitting description of him. And I don't know if you've ever seen the Sir Alex Ferguson uh, documentary where he dis where he says know, yeah, he's given a a lecture to one of the Yale University or something, and he, yeah. And, well, it all goes, how do you succeed? And he's got this big graph out. All roads lead back to him.
2: Yeah, I think Hewitt was carved from that kind of... um...
3: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but to be successful, he wanted to control everything. Yeah. And probably a controlling figure, controversial figure, actually resigned... after being investigated by the FA over alleged illegal payments to players, actually banned a journalist for 10 years for writing a story that he didn't like. I think it was probably over these alleged illegal payments to players. And the yeah, with the 10-year ban, I suppose it was only 10 years because World War II.
2: Got in the way, yeah, kind of took out most of the band time, didn't it? In a way,
3: um, well, the journalist wanted to come back, but unfortunately, Charlie Hewitt had come back to the club as manager, (laughs) so he hadn't forgotten this article.
2: No, I mean, I've got a a short paragraph from the Daily Mirror, this is dated August the 1st, 1940. Um, Soccer manager suspended. I find it quite fascinating that this goes on with Adolf Hitler, literally 20 miles from Dover. But anyway, soccer manager is suspended by the FA. Um, famous Mill FC manager, Mr Charles Hewitt, has been suspended from taking part in football for six months from today. The suspension follows the findings of a joint commission, the FA and Football League, into alleged irregularities rep- reported by Mill Directors. And that's interesting. Um, Mr. J.W.G. Conquest, formerly Millwall Assistant Secretary, who since the war attends the ground on on match days, is severely censured, and the Millwall Club is ordered to pay the costs of the inquiry. So, it sounds like there's an internal um, internal Howie. feud, yeah, um, going on there. Um, you know, and, and we we've touched on in previous shows now. I mean, illegal payments have always taken place in the game, and there's a the, the only question I think at this in this period particularly was the amount of toleration. Why you wouldn't tolerate it? Because if you've got it in for somebody, you can do it. Otherwise, it's just turn a blind eye to ninety percent.
3: Yeah. So, so he probably wound up the directors as much as he wound up everyone else.
2: Yeah. Well, I think on that point, um, there's it goes on. You know, so he's been a, he's been a successful manager for the club. He's taken us to the brink of the big time, really. And then the wars got in the way. Um, a showman, a flamboyant, a controversialist. Um, Huge personality. Um, then we get this, um, you know, he's he, he done downfall. He's suspended from the game for illegal payments, which I would almost certainly feel that um, he would contend that it goes on everywhere. So why have he been sorted out? This comes back to the the personal feuding. And then there's a wonderful libel action which he takes out against um, Mill chairman Tom Fawn in 1941, um, where... Um, Hewitt alleges slander in the boardroom against yeah. Thorne. Um, and Hewitt states that Thorne, I think Hewitt is now a lieutenant in the army, or maybe in the home guard, I don't know which. Um, he, he holds rank in the in one of the services. So yeah, wonderful wonderful libel action. Um, and there's, there's some wonderful press coverage, which I've dug out for listeners here. Um, clearly there's a feud, Neil, between him and Thorne. Um, there's a major name in, in the club's history, I and mean, chairman Tom Thorne. I think um, stretches back to the, the Isle of Dogs days, the Thorn family. Um, but they're clashing in the boardroom. Lieutenant William C. Hewitt, former secretary of manager of Millworth Sea, accuses um, Thorn of calling him a Quisling, which is a very, very, um, I mean, possibly at this time, even to this day, I, I, it's, the, it's one of the worst insults you can throw around to be put in the same category as Quisling, the Norwegian traitor. And, you know, this would have, this would have cut into the quick wouldn't it this 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 insult um i believe it was over alleged um jiggery pokery on building contracts at the, at the den <laughs> <laughs> Whose who getting which com, whose company was getting the building work for the den so um clearly so, words have been exchanged including um hewitt being called quisling by by tom Thull.
3: Backhanders were exchanged backhanders,
2: yep. fiddle, um, um, uh, alleged um, you know expenses, signing for ten shillings, actually getting a pound, all this kind of stuff. You you can you can put it together in your own mind, listeners. Um interestingly, um he won the libel case, uh, Lieutenant Bill Hewitt, Charlie Hewitt rather. Uh, William C. It? Hewitt. Mm. Won, won the guy won the day. He was awarded a hundred pound damages against Tom Thorne, Thomas Thorne of Grove Parks, chairman of the football club. Um, and the, the allegation was that Mr Thorne had referred to Charlie Hewitt as a quizzling and a man with a disordered brain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the board was considering payments claimed by Mr Thorne's building. So Thorne had the building firm for ground improvements, I dare say you can flim the rest yourself.
3: Probably wanted it as well, so he probably those.
2: did. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's, it's six of one and a half a dozen the other. I, I get a sense there are those saints and angels in that courtroom. Um, so you'd think that would be the end of Charlie Hewitt's involvement Neil, after after that. It was.
3: Yeah, we'd have thought that Charlie Hewitt would have been no more down at the den.
2: But this is but, Millwall. But, <laughs> <laughs> this is Millwall, and he comes back. <laughs>
3: He returns in controversial circumstances, no doubt. Charlie didn't ever do things by half.
2: No, he didn't. He didn't. Um, He comes back, um, I think the club were desperate. Jack Cock was managing after the war and lost his flavour. The the chewing gum had lost its flavour in the post war. And so the hero Jack Cock was, um, you know, no longer, services no longer needed. He's going to go and manage the, the White Hart pub in New Cross. And Hewitt returned by engineering almost a boardroom coup, because I think the thorns were not going to see him come back no matter what. But Hewitt was the consummate politician and engineered a boardroom AGM and almost a coup against the, the, the board of directors. Yeah, and
3: it's quite they've Been managing Leighton Orient on on according to Richard Lindsay, the highest salary ever paid. And it was a, after a stormy nine months he resigned, complaining that Orient had made no available, so no money available to buy new players. They persuaded him to change his mind and made a bold bid for Tommy Lawton. But success was still a stranger, and uh, um, he left. He left to return to the den after engineering the boardroom coup.
2: There's an account in the, in the James Murray book where, you know, he's described as a politician as much as anything, showman politician. Um, and, you know, he engineers, a, an AGM, he engineers enough votes um, amongst, um, among, amongst those that took part to, to oust the, um, the Thorns and get himself reinstated as manager. Um, he also stages a kind of, <laughs> like a, um, I think it was a reserve game, and he, there's a crowd in in the den for a reserve game. When the Mister Byerfanal of the now, say, announced over the um, the tannoy that an old friend had come back to see them, all and he came out um, through the, the players' entrance with a microphone and made a barnstorming speech about getting the club back to where it belonged, it was at the top of the you know top of the table, um, away from the the lowly. Um, reaches that it would fallen into under, under Jack Cock and the previous Thorn regime and all this kind of stuff. And it went down a storm, apparently, the crowd.
3: Yeah, sounds like Peter de Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, a good analogy. Um, um, you know, the crowd cheered him from the rafters and he cheered from the pitch. But as as we always know at the then success is fleeting and today's hero is tomorrow's villain. Um, his second spell in charge of the club was not as successful, Neil, was it? I mean, he fell into Division 4.
3: Um, yeah, we had to actually reapply for re election at one stage.
2: 1949 to 50, re election, which um, you know, was an ignominious, ignominy. Um, we finished runners up in Division 4 in 1952 53, but these were not the glory days of pre war football for the Lions. And um, he was sacked in 1956. And then, <laughs> as, as Charlie Hewitt probably would do, won a case for unfair dismissal against the club. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah, really he likes a little. Yeah, really he liked to spot a litigation as one of my.
2: He did. Friends. He did. There's, there's some great. I mean, oh, I did a search on on the newspaper website, and I did a search. There's so much about Charlie Hewitt online. You can't read it all, and there's there's a um, a storyline of um, um a, a guy called Jack Chisholm, who's a player, um, where he. Yep
3: featured in our uh, featured in our World War Two
2: guests. He did, yeah, Plymouth, I was gonna say a Plymouth Argyle player where he nearly comes to Millwall but doesn't. Um and in the course of this column he confesses to fixing matches and, and yeah,
3: taking right, bets.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but um for some reason he didn't like he didn't like um he didn't like the look of Charlie Hewitt. Um <laughs> And there's a wonderful, um, there's a, there's a, I mean, this, this would make great drama. Maybe one day we'll put it on as a, as a theatrical event um, where, where Charlie gets Jumbo Jack, in, who's no angel, listeners. If you listen to previous show, you'll know that. He's a, a lovable rogue, or, or how lovable, I don't know. It depends how far away from where you are. But, um, but um, Chisholm um, basically says he wants a £1,000. This is in the prelim meeting at London's Victoria Snack Bar. Victoria Station snack bar with Dr. Apple and and um, Charlie Hewitt um, after a cup of tea. But Jack um, has a, has a Scotch. But I think Hewitt's on the tea. J- Jumbo Jack's on the Scotch. Um, Charlie broaches the subject of coming to Millwall. Um, Jumbo Jack says, "I will, but for a thousand pounds, which is substantial money then, Mill, it? so It's that's 1963." We're talking about. But you won't take a penny less than a thousand pounds, says Jumbo Jack. So Charlie didn't bat an eyelid. He says, Charlie Hewitt doesn't bat an eyelid. He then says, come back to the ground with me and, uh, and we'll come meet the chairman and we'll talk things over. So then he, uh, Charlie, Charlie Hewitt and Jumbo Jack and the, and the board are sitting in the middle um boardroom. And Hewitt says to Jumbo Jack, um, will you tell the gentleman around the table what you just asked me for in, 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 the, um, in the snack bar? Um, but Chisholm says, smells around, thinks that um, Hewitt's trying to get him into trouble because that would be, um, you know, kind of uh, treating for, for bribes almost. And he's, he, yeah. he's going to get him in front of the FA and, and, and have, him for a, have him over or have some, something on him. Um, so he, did, he he denies knowing about it. <laughs> what do you mean, says Jumbo Jack, innocently. <laughs> if, if such a Can you imagine Jumbo Jack Chisholm saying anything innocently? What do you mean? <laughs> You know, says Charlie, the thousand pounds. Still acting the innocent, uh, Jack says, that thousand pounds? I don't know what you're talking about. And then Charlie Hewitt hustled me outside. Um, and he says, uh, Hewitt asks him, why didn't you tell him about the money you wanted? He asked me angrily. Then J- Jumbo Jack also loses his temper. he says, what, and have you framed me, Mr. Ruddy? Mr. Ruddy, I'm sure it wasn't Ruddy. Mr. Ruddy Hewitt, I wasn't born yesterday. and I wasn't. In a day or two, I was back on the way to Plymouth, and the start of five glorious years at Plymouth. They were not the club for me. it Completes in bold black capitals. Uh, what a meeting, Jumbo Jack and Charlie Hewitt! You now that would have been a meeting I would love to have seen, and I would love to. Have- yeah. We-
3: I did a, a Netflix documentary on that one with Fly on the Wall. That would have been absolutely glorious television, that well, one. On then. the Wall,
2: the Victoria Station snack bar where they a £1,000 and when you jerk them a the scotch and they one's having a Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, there we it, are. He actually glossed over
3: that, that, that he did actually bring some brilliant Servants of the club, especially in this second spell, Jimmy Constantine,
2: yeah, yeah,
3: big names, uh, uh, Alex Jardine, Pat Seward, uh, Johnny Shepherd, Charlie Hurley, Johnny Summers.
2: What an interesting what, man! What a mix of you know all the things we've described and yet talent as well, Neil. I mean. You can't just be flamboyant without delivering on the talent front. And I think Charlie did, didn't he? He was—he was—he was, he must have been infuriating and brilliant in equal measure. I mean, you just described the players there. These were all, you know, normal names, um, and he was successful pre-war. And and you know, it, it was—it would have been entertaining if nothing else to 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 have been around. And I think brilliant to have seen what
3: would have happened to that pre-war team because obviously the landscape had changed by the end of World War Two.
2: Yeah, yeah, as well as big what-ifs. Um, yeah. Charles Hewitt, 1884 to 1966. He was born in Durham as a Northeastern boy. Known as Mr. Millwall, and I think, um, as as uh, James Murray puts it, um, he regarded Millwall and Cold Blow Lane as his personal fiefdom, his personal domain, and he ran it that way. He was involved with every aspect of the club. Major name, major personality, and a film is begging to be made about it, the, the, you know, the, the mix of talent and, and, and the colourful behaviour is just wonderful. I really hope you've enjoyed listening to this series of shows. I've, I've, I've really enjoyed speaking to Neil, um, the wonderful twists and turns of, of the stories and the characters and the history of the club. Um, I hope that it helps to um, memorialise these names, um, brings them to people's attention. I would love for there to be plaques to the likes of Bill Voicy, um, Bob Hunter, and and all of the names in their different ways. I think we we need as a club to you know to, to 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 remember our history and to mark these great great characters out because each of them have given us all so much, and we wouldn't have the club that we have now without them. So I want to say thank you to you, Neil, for the research that you have put into this. Um, it's been wonderful um, looking back and for your input and um, Perhaps if people enjoy it we can do another series of this
3: yeah no Nick it's been an absolute pleasure just to just to just to reminisce for the afternoon in, in this series about you know we've had a laugh along the way and but these are real real rich personalities yeah you might think well, well they're not really legends but we've tried to bring stories yeah behind I agree to entertain and it's yeah, well, I hope I hope that people have enjoyed, yeah, well, they actually enjoyed listening to these as much as we've enjoyed talking about them, and looking at them, and researching them, and sharing with everybody. Absolutely, yeah. all about is sharing.
2: Yeah, and it's community. It's it's, it's the. It's the linkage of now with the past and that's that's what we've tried to do with this series. So really appreciate your time and effort on this now. If you've enjoyed the series, do, do let us know. Um always enjoy, interested in any, any suggestions um, for shows in the future. Big thank you, Neil Fisler. Thank you very much, mate. That's, that's been wonderful. Cheers, Nick.
3: Thank you for listening to Acton Moore. If you enjoyed the show, please
0: head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a cheeky little
3: review. I love that you move Till next time.